We have watched Paul in chapter 14 have quite a time preaching the gospel. And we read in verse 17 that nevertheless he did not leave himself without witness. Paul is preaching there. He speaks and he says that uh, in verse 18, with these things they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. And then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitude, stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered round him, he rose up and he went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. One thing Paul's trips never were, and that is boring. You could be rest assured if you were going to hang out with Paul, you would have quite a time with him. It would be... You would have excitement. And uh, if you were bored with your regular job, just go on a Paul the Apostle type missionary journey and uh, it can be quite exciting. If we were to go back to the very beginning of this journey, we see that he first went to Cyprus where a sorcerer came and tried to persuade the proconsul away from the faith. And Paul turned to him, rebuked him, and he said, you'll be blind for a season. And the man was blinded. And then he traveled on to Antioch of Pisidia, and there was a confrontation between unbelievers and himself. He went on to the area of Galatia, and he went into Iconium. He divided the entire city. Some people loved him. Other people hated him. He went into Lystra, and they said he was a god. And then a few minutes later, they stoned him almost to death. And so wherever Paul went, he left a divided group of people uh, some who dearly loved him and those who hated him. And, and that's really the way to preach the gospel. He wasn't obnoxious, by the way. He just told the truth. And the true gospel does divide. Some people will like it. Some people will hate it. And it's good to have that kind of a reaction and that kind of a response. It's when people don't do anything that it's the most dangerous. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You either gather or you scatter And it's important that men and women know where they're at with the Lord. If they're his enemies, they should have the guts enough to say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, instead of putting on a religious facade. Well, Paul the Apostle created this response wherever he went, as we have seen in this chapter. Paul was an innovator. He was a pioneer. He was not a person to maintain. It was just not his M.O. He couldn't just hang out and do the same thing and keep something going and just keep it afloat. He had to expand it. And uh, his vision was that big. He wanted to see the world saved. And I'm sure people thought, Paul, look, you got a lot of zeal, but be realistic. You can't save everyone. He said, I might not be able to, but I'm going to try. And he was the kind to leave his comfortable place and go to a new area of the country or of the empire and start trailblazing and sharing with people who'd never heard who Jesus was before. And he saw some dramatic results. We know that Paul made reference to what happened in Lystra, when in 2 Corinthians he's detailing all of his trials and tribulations. He says, I was shipwrecked, I had this happen to me. And he said, once I was stoned. And he is referring to his stoning in Lystra, when the city gathered around him, threw stones on him and left him for dead. Once I was stoned, he said. It seems that Paul bore 
the effects and the consequence of this stoning on his physical body forever. Most scholars believe that as a result of Paul the Apostle being stoned, he developed an eye irritation, eye problems. Perhaps he was hit around the orbital area, there were fractures. It did something ophthalmologically that he couldn't see right. Because when he writes his letters, even if they were very short epistles, he would often say at the end, you see what large letters I have written to you. Not speaking of the letter itself, but of the letters that he would use to write with. He had to write them in extra giant bold because he couldn't see very well. This is what most scholars believe. He often would dictate letters to people and have them carried to the churches. At one point he said, I know that you would have even plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. In speaking of his death or near-death experience in 2 Corinthians 12. He said that he was allowed to have a thorn in the flesh. And most people relate it to some kind of an eye problem that occurred because he was stoned. I found a description of Paul the Apostle. I don't know the exact source, but I've had it on file for a while. And it says, quote, He was a man of moderate stature with curly hair and scanty, crooked legs. He had protruding eyeballs, large knit eyebrows, a long nose, and thick lips. That's Paul the Apostle. You probably never thought of I probably shattered all of your previous dreams of what he looked like. Uh, this short, stunted, bold-legged, thick-lipped, runny-eyed character. And that's why people would mock him. And Paul said, in making reference to this, they say that he is bold in his letters, but he's so meek and weak in appearance. But it could be that these protruding eyeballs came from what happened at Lystra when he was stoned for the gospel. Now we read in the next couple verses that, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, the city of Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Lystra is where he got stoned. He got stoned, he went back into the city, then he went to Derby. then he went back to Lystra. Paul, take a hint. They don't like you in Lystra. But he went back to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed, fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. When they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had completed. Now the route that Paul decides to take back to Antioch is interesting, because the easiest way to get back to Antioch would be probably to go east to Tarsus, take the loop of land around and sink straight down to Antioch, or go right down to the coast and take a boat into Seleucia and from there to Antioch. That's the easiest route. But instead, Paul backtracks 20 miles to Lystra, 40 miles to Antioch of Pisidia, 60 miles to Iconium, and finally gets back to Antioch where he started. 
The question is, why did he do that? When already he's offended people, already he's gotten himself into trouble for preaching the gospel, he's almost dead, or perhaps he was dead and God raised him up, why would he go back to the same places that he caused such division? Well, the answer is simple. It's the gospel that made him go back there. Paul lived what he said when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. Many people rejected him and hated him, but there was a few people who listened to him. And it was worth to him going back and sharing with the people who would listen to him, shaking the dust off of his feet to those who had no intention of coming to know Christ, but spending his time now on the people who really were interested. It was the gospel that brought him back. Paul said of his ministry, the love of Christ constrains me. I love those people. And he went back because of the gospel's sake to strengthen the brethren, to set up elders, and then finally he went back to Antioch. It is hard when people don't like what you do as a Christian. It's tough to go against the flow And when you go against the flow and people get a little tiffed about it, your natural response is, well, then I'll just back down. I don't want to offend anybody. Recently, I was called uh, a couple weeks ago by the Albuquerque Journal. And they said, we've heard that you've sent gospel literature to Saudi Arabia. Is that right? I said, yes, it is. Well, how many did you send? I think we sent about 80,000. And uh, and they, I gave them the story and so forth, and they called uh, NBC, and they, it got over the Associated Press, and it's, it got into actually national and international news. And I've had lawyers call me from the East Coast and uh, angry. And uh, NBC called Franklin Graham in North Carolina and said, "Is it true altogether? We sent two million tracks. Is it true you've sent two million tracks?" And Franklin said, "No, I don't think so. I think we've sent more by now." And it's created a stir. I was interviewed by CBN Friday. No, I was uh, the other day, two, day before yesterday and Tuesday. CBN uh, sent their crew over here, and it'll be aired tomorrow from Virginia Beach. Uh, the response, but the Albuquerque Journal, you know, asks questions, and then they write the articles they're famous for, uh, stirring up controversy and not getting all of the facts, and getting some of the facts and slanting it against. Uh, you and it's it's typical press and typical Albuquerque press, uh, but uh, uh, that has created quite a stir. And uh, you know, people have said we're angry that you would send gospel literature and and uh, harm our troops. I haven't gotten one letter of anybody being shot or harmed because of this, because we say if this is offensive, then throw it away. Uh, I have heard of people. Uh, being harmed by Saddam Hussein and by uh, Scud missiles, but not by gospel tracts. And I'll guarantee you one thing. The Saudi Arabians are not sitting there fuming and wondering about gospel tracts. They're wondering about missiles right now. The last thing that's on their mind is gospel tracts. But here's a typical letter to show you the kind of opposition that can come. Uh, it's written by uh, uh, a person locally that said, I've just finished reading the article in this morning's journal concerning your congregation sending leaflets to our troops in the Middle East, encouraging them to attempt to convert 
the Islamic coast. Now listen to this next sentence. Nothing I have read concerning the war revolts me more than this. Now think about that statement. Nothing so far, including innocent people getting killed, including gas being loaded possibly into missiles, scuds into Israel, a dictator who should be taken out of power, who's hurting all sorts of thousands of his people, doesn't revolt him as much as sending gospel tracts. It gets worse. <laughs> Listen to this next statement. I have been raised a Christian. exactly how I feel. <laughs> I have been raised a Christian, so you need have no fear that an atheist is raising an issue with your deeds. One of the most questionable tenets of Christianity that you believe is that they only seem to have the correct route to salvation. If this belief is seriously followed, then the coffers of hell are bursting at the seams, given that the world is far and above not Christian. Well, that's what motivated Paul to be stoned and beaten and go from city to city so that people wouldn't go there. So that he could share the gospel with people. And few people have, you know, oh no, is it wrong that we sent tracts? Well, I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. And you don't have to be involved, but I'll tell you what. There are enough evangelical Christians in this country that are ticked off that our country bowed the knee to a wicked government. Don't think Saudi Arabia is a righteous land. It has been hostile to the gospel. It's been hostile to Israel, hostile to the states, actually, for many years. And when they make us, and the government will just bow to them and rip off crosses off of chaplain's uniforms and not call them chaplains anymore, but call them morale officers. And for our country to say, we will give you our boys' blood, but we won't be able to tell you what made our nation great. That makes a lot of us angry. And there's a lot of people who would like to just sit back and philosophize and theologize and talk about world problems and talk about evangelism and do nothing until someone does something about it and they say, shouldn't have done it. Well, you know what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. And I've gotten enough letters from troops. And now people, it's easy to write letters and say, you shouldn't have done this. But the troops say, thank you for sending them to us. It bolsters our confidence in the Lord. One, I got this one letter because uh, uh, Samaritan's Purse, Franklin, and some of us have sent not only tracts, but thousands of Arabic New Testaments over. And uh, this one guy said, I am writing this from a foxhole. I received your package in the mail. Tears are streaming down my eyes as I'm listening to the praise tape. And he said, just having this encourages me. And thank you for the uh, Arabic New Testament. I've been trying to witness to the Egyptians and to some of our allies, but don't know the language. Now I've got a Bible and I'm going to give it to them. Oh, and I say, you know what? That makes it all worth it. And uh, some of these tracks will be thrown away, but some of them will go into the right hands. And it's wonderful for me to see the kind of people that have gotten angry over this. It's all the kind of people I like to see angry over this. 
Now, if it were born-again Christians angry and there were enough reputable ones, I would think again. But uh, I heard, I got a phone call from Tom Terry from K-Lite the other day, and he said, you got to listen to this. He had this tape. There was an anti-war demonstration in the university. And he said, yeah, you were mentioned in it. I said, really? Well, how was I mentioned in it? He said, well, you know, your name wasn't, but they, they had kind of like a game show episode, and people were trying to act like somebody, and, and, and they would call upon the panel. And these were people who were uh, hated America, hated the flag, hated the Bible. And they said, well, Reverend so-and-so, you stand up. And the guy started ranting and raving, hallelujah, praise God, praise Bush, praise the flag. Oh, don't hurt our flag. And they were mocking the flag. And then they made a reference saying, well, my church has sent thousands of tracts to Saudi Arabia and trying to stir up the crowd. And, uh, you know, I knew who they were referring to. But, hey, to be criticized in uh, in the group of Bush, the flag... God, the Bible, hey, that's good company. And Tom played that for me. I said, Tom, I think that's great. If they're ticked off of me, that kind of makes me happy a little bit. But uh, what made Paul go back after he was stoned? And they basically sent out a message, we don't want to hear the gospel, but he went back anyway. You don't stop people like this. And God when he sees a person like Paul who wants to honor the gospel of Jesus Christ, God will honor that person. And God will open up doors for that person. And uh, it's neat to see this guy, Paul, just going right back into these and retracing his steps. And don't think that they were all hardships. He got rewards out of it. For we read that many people came to know Christ in the cities that he was in. In fact, the Bible says there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents than of righteous people who need no repentance. So think of one person, perhaps, in all of the Middle East coming to know Christ, standing in the presence of God when you see them in eternity. And then all of the critics, you just say, hey, who cares? Here's a person that all the angels in heaven rejoiced over, and I got to be a part of it. So that's neat. Well, I want you to notice a couple things in the minutes that we have remaining. He goes back through the cities. He does a few things in regard to strengthening the churches. And then he reports back to his home church or the sending church at Antioch who sent them out in the first place in Acts chapter 13. But in this chapter, we see a little bit of an outline of Paul's missions policy. Paul's missions policy, and we send enough missionaries out and they go and come back that it bears speaking about for a few moments. Paul always established churches when he established a mission. He didn't go into a place and set up a mission. He set up a church. People came to know Christ. He discipled them and churches were set up and then he would go back and ordain elders in those places. And within 10 years the four main providences of the Roman Empire had churches that were left behind wherever he went. He would go mostly into key cities rather than villages. He would set up a work of evangelism in a key city. The people that responded to the gospel message, he would take and train them, then encourage them in their walk to spread the good news to the surrounding villages and the other areas. But it's interesting that Paul never set up a mission organization. But he always set up a church. 
In fact, he would go into an area, he would share the gospel, he would encourage the brethren, and then he would leave and go home. Then he would retrace his steps, encourage them, raise up more leadership, if need be, write letters to them, and he would leave and go home. That's his pattern. Not necessarily it's the pattern for all, but that was his pattern. He established churches, not mission organizations. You see, in the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, which includes Saudi Arabia, by the way, baptizing them, teaching them to observe. And I don't want to digress too much, but on the L.A. Times, right before the war, they showed in California one of our soldiers being baptized somewhere in Saudi Arabia. He came to know Christ because he knew perhaps a war is going to break out. And because of evangelism among the troops, he was baptized. And the L.A. Times sported that on the front cover of one of their sections. So Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded. So Paul would go into an area and want to see converts, but want to see disciples. And he believed in indigenization. That is not exporting or importing all sorts of great white missionaries into foreign countries, but going there himself, seeing a work develop, and then raising up local ministers, people in the body to be raised up and become elders, deacons, and lead the body, and so forth. Dr. Charles Erdman said, A proper missionary program has its aim at the establishing on the field of self-governing, self-sustaining, self-propagating churches. Well, that was Paul's method. He would go in, see a work of evangelism established, and not say, hey, I led people to Christ, and blitz out. He would see a church established. And then as a church was established, he would move on. Well, we read in verse 21, that when he had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, that they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter excuse me, enter the kingdom of God. They needed to be strengthened. They had received tidbits of truth. Uh, How much uh, Bible knowledge can you get on an itinerant apostle coming into your village or your town and spending perhaps a week there? So they had a basic foundation, but the foundation needed to be built upon. And so he came there to bolster them or to strengthen them in their faith to keep adding to that foundation. And notice, exhorting them to continue in the faith. Not just to continue in faith, but to continue in the faith. That's a technical term that is used in the New Testament many times. And it refers to this. It seems that as the church developed, there came to develop a body of teaching, a body of doctrine called the Apostles' Doctrine. It had a technical name called didache, or the didactic teaching of the twelve that was passed on. And so the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in prayers. In Romans 16, Paul says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have heard. Keep away from them. In Second Thessalonians, he tells us, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and who does not live according to the teaching that you received from us. So there was this body of teaching, things like 
Our God is the only true God, the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. He had one only son who was God in human flesh, born of a virgin, who died on a cross in our place for our sins, who rose again from the dead, who will come and reign in glory. The Holy Spirit is given to the church to indwell and to animate the church for works of service. We must press on in personal holiness and love and maturity. All of these things comprise the faith, a body of teaching that the church, the Orthodox Church, would hold to and believe. Now, later on, they developed actual creeds, and it was called the Apostles' Creed. Later on, it was revised and called the Nicene Creed, and there's been creeds of Christendom to let people know what we believe and why, to distinguish between truth and error, that which is straight or orthodox and that which is occult and non-Christian. And so he told them to continue in the faith. Why is that important? And why is it important that we teach the Bible teach the truth and point out error at the same time that we teach the truth. Why is it important to speak about doctrine? Now, I realize that that is a dirty word to some people. Doctrine sounds too stuffy, theological, over my head. And so you hear uninformed sentences like, well, doctrine isn't important. Why let doctrine become a part of this conversation? Hey, I'm not into doctrine. You better be. The doctrine, the word doctrine means correct teaching. And so to say I'm not into doctrine says, I really don't care what anybody believes or what I believe. I don't care in what is right or what is correct. God has always been concerned that people believe and know the truth. And Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so, in the Old Testament, God gave the law. But God didn't say, well, here's the law, see you later. He said, here's the law. Now, fathers, teach this to your children. Teach them the truth. Put up reminders wherever you go. Tie the law on your arm. Tie it on your forehead. So you wake up in the morning, you look, oh, the law. Right there. Can't miss it. Tie it on your doorposts everywhere as a reminder that I am to reign over your life. And your children are going to ask you, Dad, what is that funny thing on your head? Why do you tie the law on your arm? What is the thing on our doorpost? Why do we do these things? Son or daughter, it's because of what God has given to us and the commandments that God has passed on to the children of Israel. That's what made us great. It's our spiritual heritage. And so God wanted people to learn the truth as time went on. Every seventh year in the Old Testament, on the Feast of Tabernacles, all of the law was read at one time from Genesis to Deuteronomy. That was a long Bible study. Every seven years, God said to Joshua, take this law and meditate on it once a year. You didn't catch that? Every day, he said. Meditate on it every day, day and night, so that you may be prosperous and succeed. The kings of Israel were given a copy of the law, and they had to meditate on it also day and night. Now, there's a frightening prediction. And this is why it's important that we give ourselves to the faith, the body of truth. In 1 Timothy 4, it says, The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, 
Some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. And so Paul went back to these churches to strengthen them in the body of doctrinal truth so that they wouldn't stray because there were many false prophets that were coming in. He wanted them to be firmly set upon the foundation. But we must emphasize the word continue in that verse. He said that they would continue in the faith. Continuance is the proof that you are a Christian. There is, is to quit midstream. Oh, it's too hard to preach the gospel. Oh, people don't like what I'm doing. Oh, this is too hard. I'm going through trials. Well, I'll just float with the stream. That's the easiest thing to do. But the proof that you follow Christ and obey Him is that you continue in what He's called you to do. Jesus said in John 8, If you abide in My Word, then you are My disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And again, Acts 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now these people in these cities needed to continue because there were idols, there were antagonists who hated Paul and hated Christians. They didn't want to see the gospel being spread and it was easy to want to give up. And so Paul exhorted them or encouraged them to continue in the faith. But there's also a warning. Notice what he says. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, don't you think that Paul was speaking from personal experience at that point? Having bruises all over his head? People would listen to that message. When a person who suffered speaks on suffering, people tend to listen. When he, They saw this bloody, bruised person say, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. They thought, whoa, this guy has boldness. Here he is coming back and sharing again with this city and with us to strengthen us to go on. And he knew what he was talking about. He refers to this in Second Timothy later on. He says, you, however, know all about my teaching and my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions that I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's something we're going to focus more on Sunday morning. So look at verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Every group eventually needs some kind of organization. Thus, leadership is needed. And so Paul ordained these elders in the city. The church is both an organization and an organism. If the organization is not an organism, it's dead. There's no life in it. It's just organized nothingness. But if you have an organism and you never organize it, you'll just have a blob. And so the organism or the continual growth and vitality of the church that God adds to 
must eventually be organized, not over-organized, not under-organized. In fact, I think the church in the book of Acts was much more under-organized than over-organized, and I love that. Because they had to trust the Holy Spirit instead of the committee who's over the committee who's over the committees and the committee's committee. It was just the Lord, the Holy Spirit working, and people had to trust God. But there came an organization in a time when leadership had to be raised up. There's something you notice conspicuously about reading the New Testament. There is an absence of consistent ministerial order in the New Testament. What I mean by that, there is not one form of church government that is followed consistently through the book of, uh, through the book of Acts and the epistles. Some people try to force that in there, saying, well, there's always been a plurality of elders or there's always been uh, congregational rulership or whatever. There's not. It changes as God's program is changing in the book of Acts. The leaders were local. Sometimes in the New Testament, there were a plurality of elders, that is, more than one. They all shouldered the burden together. And there were times when there was just one elder because many of the churches in the New Testament were house churches. They met house to house. And they were to ordain an elder in each house church. Until the church obviously grew and there needed to become a plurality of these pastors or elders. So, first of all, Paul would go into a town and set up and make sure there was in place the body of truth, the faith. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what you must know is true because false prophets and teachers will come in. Secondly, he set up teachers to lead the people through the Word of God. What is wonderful is that there was not a tight control. Paul didn't say, now, I, Paul the Apostle, am the bishop's bishop and the district superintendent. And, uh, hey, listen, you're free to do whatever you want in the Lord as long as you check with me first. And uh, if you want to get anything like property or something, well, you will run it past our central mother church governing board, and then you can do it. Now, I am not saying that to mock those churches who are involved in that. More power to them. I just couldn't keep up with the bureaucracy. But my point is, the Bible says that they were commended to the Lord. For notice it says, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The word commend means to entrust, to place on deposit taking something you value and letting someone else take care of it. Let's say you're going to go overseas and you just bought a new car. And you say, you know what? Here's the keys to my car. Hey, it's valuable, but would you just take care of it for me? Entrusting what is valuable to somebody else. Well, that's what they did with the church. Paul said, you know what? It's not my church. It's his church. I'm just a shepherd. I'm just an evangelist. So I'm going to commend you and I'm going to commend you elders to the Lord, your gods. God, take care of them. And then he left and he went on. See, Paul was confident. Paul was confident that as long as these people stick to the faith, the body of truth, as long as they have elders who are teaching them the word of God, and as long as God is faithful, they're safe. You see, that's important because there has come a teaching of hyper-accountability. Hey, I'm all for accountability. We need it with each other. But you don't need just one person over you, lording over your faith. And there are teachers who say, listen, for you to grow, you have to submit to me and you can't do anything unless I give you approval. 
Oh, you want to buy a new house? Well, I don't think you should do it. I prayed about it and I don't think it's the right time. Oh, you want to get married to that person? Well, I prayed about it and you shouldn't get married to that person, but God laid this other person on my heart. Hey, no thanks. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And if you can have the Lord as your shepherd, don't settle for some snobby-nosed sub-shepherd who would want to rule over your life. Let the Lord be the Lord in your life. And so he just commended them to the Lord. Hey, you guys are in God's hands. I'm sure the modern churches have a fit with Paul doing that, leaving them in the frontier after just a few weeks of preaching, but he moved on. See, Ronald Allen said, quote, He believed in the Holy Spirit in them. He believed that Christ was able and willing to keep that which he had committed to him. He must therefore retire from his converts and give place for Christ. Hey, if God has placed you in this body as a kinship leader, as a small group leader, as a leader of a class, love them and shepherd them. But the danger comes is when you try to push your authority around and be their Lord. Instead of letting the Lord be their Lord. Commend them to the Lord. And so he selected elders and then finally he went back and he shared with the church. So it says in verse 24, after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went to Italia. And I hope you have a map that you refer to every now and then about their missionary journeys. Then it makes sense. From there, they sailed to Antioch. This is not Antioch in Pisidia. This is Antioch over uh, by Seleucia. where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that He opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. I bet that meeting, that reunion, was one of the greatest times for the church of Antioch. Because don't you think that church was waiting in anticipation for Paul and Barnabas to return? Remember that prayer meeting in Acts 13? where they're gathered together, they're waiting on the Lord, and the Holy Spirit said, Now separate unto me Barnabas and Paul for the work whereunto I have called them. And they laid their hands on them, they prayed for them, they sent them off. They probably prayed every day for them. And now they hear, hey, Barnabas and Paul are on furlough. They're coming back home. They had a round-trip ticket. They went out, they came back the same way, and now they're going to share at our church Thursday night. Be there. And they gathered together and reported all that had occurred. And this is really like the first official missionary report in the Scripture. And imagine what the church at Antioch thought when Paul, this one bruised, bloodied person, walks up to the podium. And they look at him and they think, oh no, it was a failure. But Paul begins to tell them all that God had done. In fact, look what it says in verse 6, verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had completed. They completed it. They didn't report any failure. They reported, hey, job has been completed. Mission accomplished. We went, we came, we saw, we conquered. And God did it through us. I am uh, 35 years old. I know that shocks many of you because I look probably 20... uh, No, I'm just kidding. But uh, the Bible says that the average years of a man's life are 70. Sometimes God in His grace gives people longer. 
And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's not so good. But the average lifespan is around 70 years old or a little better. That's the case. I'm midlife right now. And at the end of my life, I want to be able to say that the task God has given me is completed. I can't say that now because it's not. There's directions that God stirs me up into and I know that my task is not completed. But one day, should I live to that ripe old age, God willing, should the Lord tarry, I want to be able to say, I have run the race. I fought fight. Now there's laid up for me a crown in heaven. I've done it. I don't want to say, oh, I wish I would have gotten involved. Oh, I wish. Oh, I have so many regrets. I should have. But I didn't. I don't ever want to say that because time is so limited. That beautiful little phrase, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Dr. C.C. Alberson said, it might be wise for us to take a little inventory of our resources as to time and review our habits of using it. There are 168 hours in each week. 56 we spend in sleep, 48 we devote to work. At least 64 hours, 12 of which we assign to daily meals, allowing 30 minutes for each meal and at one and a half hours extra to promote good digestion. We have then 52 hours left of conscious, active life to devote to any purpose to which we are inclined. Think now in terms of Paul the Apostle. Running out to Lystra, Derby, Iconium, Antioch, and Pisidia. Divides the city. Controversy. They think he's a god. Then they stone him. Then he goes back into the city. The guy's a maniac. A couple chapters though. You know what? You want to know what his life's goal was? This is it. Acts chapter 20. He said, If only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that rich? I want to run the race. I want to complete the task He's given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And so they go back to the church and they report it. What did they report? Do you think Paul told them of the stones that hit his head? No, I bet he did. About the pain that he felt? About the opposition and the persecution? I'm sure that he did, but notice the emphasis in this verse. What God had done with them. That's what they reported. Hey, let me tell you what God has done. Instead of, well, I was out there and as I was speaking and as I was sharing with the crowd, as people were listening to me, he said, let me tell you what God has done. Yeah, I got beat up a little bit, but let me tell you what God has done. You see, Paul always dared to see things from the divine activity standpoint. And he saw all of life in relationship to God's doing things. God's divine activity. And so he shared all the things that God had done. You know why that's important? Because we must always see ourselves as vessels, instruments, not a source. The minute you think that you have become the source of what everybody needs, and you alone have the answers, and you alone, that's a Messiah complex. See yourself as an instrument, a tool, whom God can use mightily, but you're nothing more than a tool. Don't boast in the fact that you're a tool. Magnify your ministry, but boast in the source, the Lord. If you were to go up to a doctor after he uh, performed a successful operation on you and he walks into the recovery room and he still has a scalpel in one hand, retractors in the other hand, 
would you turn to him and say, Oh, praise you, scalpel. Oh, those retractors. Oh, I would thank you, retractor. You did, you say that's foolish. You're praising the instrument rather than the one who did the job. Would you walk up to a painter who's painting on the street and say, that brush, how does it do that? How does it work? It doesn't. It's just a tool in the hands of an artist. And so we are not the source. We are only the instrument. We can never see ourselves as more than that. And so he focuses on what God has done through them. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Who build it? And we'll continue on next week. What's the lessons? The lessons are simply this. One major overlying theme. As you are going through persecution, as you are going through trials and difficulty, you are sowing the seeds for something wonderful. And a lot of times, while you're suffering, while you're going through this intense trial and pain and tribulation, you can't see all of the wonderful things that God is accomplishing in your life and perhaps through your life. But one day they'll come to fruition and you too will be able to report the things that God has done with your life. And that's what's important. What do you do with your life? Are you able to say, God is doing something with my life? Is God doing something in your life? I hope all of you can say yes. Yes, God is speaking to me. God is feeding me, ministering to me, encouraging me. But don't stop there. Ask then, what is God doing with my life? Am I completing the task that He's given? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the opportunity, first of all, to have You work in us. We really need that. Um, Without You, we can do nothing. We're hopeless cases apart from Christ. But then on the other hand, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. There are no limitations. Lord, I pray that there would be within the center of our beings, the heart, a commitment that would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And we would not think in terms of applause or criticism now, but applause or criticism in eternity as we stand before You. And the question is, are You pleased with us? We know, Lord, that we're the apple of Your eye. We also know, Lord, the great things that can be accomplished through an instrument that is yielded to You. And we ask that we might become, however small, a tool in Your hands, that You might receive all the glory. And that many might turn to know you and that many would be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen.